0: Silver Blaze is the title of a Sherlock Holmes story better known as the incident the, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime a thief came into the barn and stole a horse the dog was there but didn't bark to warn the owner why no one has asked me about it but i will guess that some of you have been wondering I didn't sign a letter that our bishop and several of my favorite clergy sent earlier this month to the governor of Arkansas. The Obama administration has issued directives regarding transgender youth and bathroom use in public schools. The governor has opposed the directives. The letter supports the president's position. 70 religious leaders signed it. My signature was missing. We have a curious incident of the dean in the nighttime. He did not bark. Why? This is not the first time that my name has not been found on similar petitions, and probably will not be the last. I owe you an explanation. Of faith, you have heard me say that it has three dimensions, intellectual belief, emotional trust, and willful choice, three in one, and one in three, just like the Holy Trinity. This morning's gospel reading puts the the accent on the third component, where faith is something someone does or doesn't choose. Under our doctrine of religious freedom, that is also where we place the accent in the USA. For Americans, faith is optional. Take it or leave it. The choice is ours. This gospel story reminds us that the choice of faith in Christ can be uncomfortable at times. Jesus did not pull well in Samaria and couldn't get lodging for the evening. Your kind's not welcome here, they said. Foxes and birds were snug in their beds while the Lord of heaven shivered through the nighttime. This reminds us that from the beginning our faith has played to mixed reviews, so it should not surprise or much concern us that it does so now and that it brings occasional discomfort to the faithful. Compared to the first Christians, obviously, we have it easy in America, which protects religious choices, faith in Christ among them. Like us or not, the hotels have to take us. We sleep much better than birds and foxes. So, like Chuck Berry, I'm glad I'm living in the USA. America also protects choices in the realm of sexual expression and identity, and in the pursuit of happiness writ large. I love a country that from its founding has regarded happiness as sacred. I also love that in our faith. From St. Augustine, Christians learned that through faith, our instinctive thirst for happiness draws us finally to God. After that bad night's sleep, Jesus was grumpy. The would-be follower asked him leave to bury his father before joining the disciples. Jesus brought him up short. Leave the dead to bury the dead, he said. Appraising that rebuke, we might guess that Jesus had the book of Deuteronomy in mind when Moses gathered Israel and said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your descendants may live. Faithful, Israel would live and prosper. Godless, lawless, it would die. By that prophecy, The world was full of dead men walking. As a play on words, leave the dead to bury the dead, was tuned to that conviction. Though the words seem harsh, deep down they're full of promise. We know the facts. Our lives are finite. The question of our dying is not if, it's when. As Christians, we believe that in death, our lives are changed, not ended, and that the faithful dead are safe and happy. When the women went to Jesus' tomb to bury him, the angels turned Jesus' words around. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You see, leave the dead to bury the dead is irony. It points to to resurrection. So, as our story reminds us, while faith can sometimes be uncomfortable, it is always full of strength and consolation. Faith brings hope to those who choose it. In thinking about freedom, here are my working definitions for freedom, law, and rights. Freedom means power to choose. I have freedom to the extent that I can do one thing rather than another. I can get married or not, bake a cake or not, go to this bathroom or that one, etc., Laws are constraints on freedom. If the law says I cannot get married, then I'm not free in that respect. If the law says you have to bake me a cake, then you're not free in that respect. The Greek word for law is nomos. A person who does not believe in law is called an antinomian. Only brutes or fools are antinomian. Rights are constraints on law. To believe in rights is to think that our freedom to make laws is limited. Where do rights come from? The Constitution? Yes, but belief in rights predates the Constitution. Our founders often spoke of natural rights and natural law built into the scheme of things by the Creator. It's not that governments give rise to rights, they declared. It's that rights gave rise to governments. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights... Governments are instituted among men. The American experiment was conceived in faith in a creator who transcends our political activity and whose purposes constrain it. Jesus said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Our founders rendered law to Caesar, now embodied in elected governments. The bounds on law they rendered unto God. I find that beautiful and hopeful. As a priest, I am overtly non-political. There are two ways that clergy have of being non-political. One is to isolate religion as though it were a private sphere off to the side of public life and conversation. In his 1960 address to Houston ministers, John F. Kennedy famously called for just that kind of isolation. I believe in an America, he said, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly, upon the general populace, or the public acts of its officials. That speech renders almost everything to Caesar except where and how we say our prayers on Sunday mornings. That is not my way of being non-political. Like the Founders, I believe that God transcends our political activity. That is not to say that God is aloof or unconcerned. God is to Caesar as Shakespeare is to Hamlet. Within the one, the other lives and moves and has its being. That was how Elijah saw it. In the book of Kings, we find God's prophet making Caesar. The Lord said to Elijah, Go to Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Although I like our way of choosing leaders better than Elijah's, I believe that for their public acts, our leaders are accountable to God. Why then am I, unlike Elijah? so quiet politically. I don't put signs up in my yard or stickers on my bumper. I don't give money to candidates for office. Almost never do I sign petitions. From Karl Barth, I learned to see things from two standpoints. From one standpoint, I see that religion plays a meaningful role in American public life. From another standpoint, our religion speaks to truth that rises over and above political positions. From the first standpoint, some in the church see its part as appropriately partisan. Rendering unto Caesar may mean challenging him on his own turf. God's kingdom and Caesar's are set in opposition. Martin Luther King worked, at least in part, from that posture. So did Bart and Bonhoeffer in opposing Hitler. In Christian faith, there is a place for that because the gospel places high value on human interactions and those interactions are inherently political. Faith in Christ makes history. From this standpoint, writing letters to officials on matters of public policy is appropriate, contra JFK. I respect that. But I also know that the truths of Christian faith are larger than our disputes on policy. Like rights, they are transcendent. In my ministry, I choose to emphasize this other standpoint. We've got other things to talk about in church. Now, a confession. This stance comes easy to me because I am instinctively centrist. I appreciate the traditional Anglican appeal for moderation. Be neither too swift, too, too stiff in refusing change nor too eager to embrace it. The via media that's called. If I were either a staunch conservative or a passionate progressive, I might be more tempted to sign petitions. As for the recent letter that I didn't sign, had I been moved to write a letter on its subject, it was not the letter I would have written. For freedom Christ has set us free, declared St. Paul, meaning that for Christians, the ritual constraints of Moses' law were lifted. Where the Jews had law, we now have choices. According to Paul, Paul, We can choose the spirit, slavery to love, Paul calls this, or we can choose self-indulgence. John Adams would agree. To Abigail, he wrote this immortal warning to posterity. Posterity, you will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope that you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. Adams, Paul, Moses, Jefferson, and Jesus, they all believed in freedom. They all knew that we might use it foolishly or wisely. The use that all of us staunch conservative, passionate progressive, or instinctive centrist, have made of our freedom is to gather here to worship God this summer Sunday morning, a right protected by the blessed U.S. Constitution. In the matter of religion, we have exercised our right, and wisely, it is life we've chosen.